a lot. I learned that every day should start with Bible study because he didn't do anything until he had set it at their kitchen table, their dining room table, and read. And we're not talking your five-minute uh, daily bread reading. Uh, he, he was in the Word every single morning. Whatever else the day held could wait until he had spent time with his father. I learned how to deal with people who were going through, who, through rough situations by tagging along with him to support groups that were met at the church where he was an elder for, it seems like, forever. I learned how to not lose my temper all the time when things didn't go my way, but he taught me a better way, a more godly way of doing things. And he didn't, rarely did we sit down and talk about this is step one, this is step two, this is step three. But I learned so much from him. And maybe that's how it is with the person that you imagined as well, that you learned more. Actually, you caught more from them instead of just this idea of being taught to. Because very often what is caught outweighs, supersedes what is taught just simply by following a grandfather, uh, a spouse, maybe an elder or a Bible Sunday school teacher that in, in your growing up years. And I want, I want to open with that because I think that that idea that what is caught is just as, if not more than, important than what is formally taught. And I believe that we see that in Jesus' interaction with his disciples early in their walk. So as we get and we, as we talk about chair number two today, those, those people who are believers baby believers, infants in their faith, I want you to keep that in mind because our example is not just a switch that we can flip on and off. We are always being an example to somebody, whether that's a bad example or whether that's a good example. And if we are not careful, if we are not cognizant that we are always being watched, that we are always, somebody is always looking at us um, and we are going to be in danger of leading people astray because they're going to catch something from us in our rough moments when we don't handle things the way children of God should handle things. So I just want you to keep that thought in mind that that is more of what is caught than what is taught. This, we're in this series of four-chair uh, disciple-making um, and discipling like Jesus did. And we, we use these four chairs as an illustration, but also as a foundation for disciple-making endeavors. Chair one, we talked about last week in detail. The chair one are those that are lost, who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Chair two represents those who have recognized who Jesus is. They may not understand everything about him. They do not understand everything about him, but they have placed their faith in him. And when Jesus said, follow me, they said, okay. Chair number three are those who have been given more responsibility. They're, they've grown in their faith. Uh, they are making disciples with, with effort, with intentional effort. Right? But they still check back in with their master, with their rabbi, uh, periodically, and he corrects them, he encourages them. And chair four is where we all should desire to be, those, those disciples who are naturally and intentionally making disciples, multiplying the kingdom. Last week, we, we spent a lot of time digging deep in a couple different things, the humanity and the deity of Jesus. We also talked about what amazing has to happen to move somebody out of chair one into chair two. If you remember the, uh, a person in chair one, 
not simply a good person who needs a little bit more of something. The Bible describes those in chair one in our illustration, in our setup, as those who are lost, those who are dead. And we, we pose the question, what can a dead person do? Nothing. Something has to be done to that, miraculously done to a dead person in order to bring life. Jesus, through the collective work of the triune God, brings that person to life from death to life, from darkness to light, from children of wrath to children to a child of God. For those of us who are in the room who may believe that miracles cease in our present ages, and I propose to you that anytime somebody that was dead becomes alive, that is a miracle of the highest degree. Today we're focusing on chair two. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who recognize that there's something different about him and they, that, okay, I'm going to follow, I'm going to put my faith in you. They don't have all the answers to all the questions that may be posed to them, but they are following after Jesus because that's simply the, 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 the challenge that they've accepted where Jesus said, follow me. I would like for us just to look uh, at how Jesus interacted with those who were in chair two in Scripture. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to John chapter 1 and verse 43. And we're just going to watch Jesus. Watch how he interacts. Because in chapter 1 of John, uh, he, he poses this question in verse 43. He had just called uh, and just had an encounter with, a, a first, with, a, with the first two disciples where he said, come and see. They were, they were questioning him about things, and he just simply said, come and you will see. And now in verse number 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have, found the, the, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Follow me. And Philip and soon Nathanael follow. Right, if you don't think there's humor in the Bible, you need to read uh, the next few verses because uh, uh, Nathaniel comes, says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's taken a dig uh, on, on the people of Nazareth, on the town of Nazareth. If Scott McClure were here preaching this sermon, he would take this opportunity as a PHS graduate to take a dig at South graduates. Right? He was, it's, just, it's what Nathaniel is doing here, and Jesus just fires right back at him right? Ooh, look here, an Israelite with no deceit found in him at all. Right, so this is, Nathaniel dishes it, Jesus dishes it back to him. But we see these two disciples follow Jesus and watch where Jesus takes them. In chapter two, the first place they go is to a wedding feast, to a party, to celebrate with a family, who, two families who are becoming one of, of, of this special occasion. And it's not just a, a, a one-day event like we are used to. Uh, it is a big-time event. And he goes not to make sure that, that the mother-in-law uh, is, already, is all right for the, 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 the ceremony, but so that the party can continue. That's his first miracle, is to keep the party going. 
Not to heal somebody, not to bring somebody back from the dead, not to cast out demons, but to keep the party going. So they see Jesus as they're following him, right? They interact with people in a celebratory way. After this, after this wedding feast, they go to the temple. And what does Jesus do there? Right? He ends the party. He, they, they had turned the temple into something that it was not designed to be, and he ended the misuse, the mistreatment of the temple, and they watched him do that. When you get into chapter 3, I, I, it doesn't, I, I believe that the disciples were still following around. He encounters this Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he's able to, they're able to see how Jesus interacts with a religious elite of the day and how, how he calls him out. How he brings them to the point of, okay, Nicodemus, you now have enough information to make a decision. And, and then you keep going one through and you see this meetup between the cousins, Jesus and John the Baptist. And you see them talk about Jesus' baptism. And, and all the while, these disciples are there just watching, just following. And you get into chapter 4 and Jesus meets this, this, um, this outcast, this woman who's a Samaritan. And they watch him have an encounter with her and how he treats her with respect and how he talks with her with empathy, to her with empathy. And they witness all of that. Over in chapter 4 and in verse number 46, you see that Jesus has an encounter with this military, this political official who comes to him, who makes a journey. It's about a 20-mile journey to where Jesus was just to say to him, I need your help, Jesus. My, my son is sick. And Jesus tells him simply, go, your son will be healed. So he has to have a modicum of faith right there, a belief right there to go back. And he meets a servant who says, your son's better. And his whole household believed. And in, uh, in, in chapter 5, uh, when, when, when there's a feast going on in Jerusalem, and Jesus happens to be at one of the pools uh, that, that is there. And, and there's, there's a superstition uh, that the angels come down and swirl the waters. And when the water swirls, you better get in there because that's when the healing takes place. And there's this guy who had been an invalid for 38 years who every time the water was stirred, he wasn't fast enough. He wasn't mobile enough. He had no one to move him into the water so that his body could be physically healed. He'd been trying for almost four decades, but somebody always beat him to the water. And there, Jesus, right, the living water, super, passes completely over the healing water that's in the pool and heals this man and makes him whole. They see Jesus interact with another person who is downcast. And that leads into this, this, uh, this, this teaching opportunity and this encounter with the Pharisees who saw this guy who had been stuck for 38 years on his mat get up and walk and celebrate. And what did they do? Woo! No. They say, you can't pick up your sleeping bag and walk on the Sabbath day. They completely glossed over what had just happened in front of them because a law might have been broken. They chose law over love. And they got to see how Jesus dealt with that kind of a situation. And then you go over into chapter 6, and you see this, this crowd that is flocking to Jesus, and he's teaching and teaching and teaching, and uh, they're checking. The, the people in the back are checking their watches because uh, somebody's going to beat them to, 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 to dinner. And Jesus just keeps talking and talking and talking, and finally he takes a small lunch and feeds the masses. And they're witness to that they see him walk on water. They, they hear him teach. They hear him encounter all of this as they merely follow him. Can you imagine all that was caught by them on that journey? As they simply followed 
after Jesus. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, all right, Nathaniel, your turn. I need you to go back to, to Isaiah chapter 4 and, and, and just uh, explain that to everybody. I don't, uh, he didn't say to Philip, okay, Philip, it's your turn, right? Uh, here, here's uh, here's uh, half a pizza uh, and half a Coke. You, you feed this town. He doesn't give them any responsibility other than just to pay attention to what he is doing. Jesus, as he led them, as they followed him, he taught us, he modeled for us how to minister to people who are sitting in chair two. Those who have been recently made alive, who now believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and who need a better understanding, a stronger footing, a bolder faith. He models for us. And look at what he does. And you have to go to more than just the Gospel of John to get all of, all of how he models. But first and foremost, he modeled a full dependence on the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, every aspect of Jesus' life and ministry was saturated by the Spirit of God. He was conceived by the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, rejoiced in the Spirit, gave commands by the Spirit, performed miracles by the Spirit. He was even resurrected by the Spirit. Jesus' life modeled a reliance on the Holy Spirit. Jesus also modeled a life that was, was focused and, and grounded in prayer. We talked about that in the last series where, where we constantly see Jesus seeking out time just to be with the Father. The busier his life got, the busier and the more focused his prayer life became as well. We, we see Jesus also being obedient to the Father's will, that he modeled the importance of being in the will of the Father. And his obedience for him wasn't easy. Obedience for him cost him he suffered because of his obedience. In John 5.30, he says, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. In Luke 22, verse 42, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Being obedient to the Father's will is something that he modeled throughout his life. He showed us that God's word was, was central to his life. You imagine that? The Son of God, the word, quoting the word, over 80 times, Jesus quotes Scripture. We know when he encountered Satan, when he encountered the Pharisees, when he was teaching, Scripture was on his lips during his entire ministry, from the hour of his temptation to the moment of his death. We also see Jesus modeling, uh, uh, exalting the Father in all aspects of life. Everything in his ministry was about the Father. I do nothing on my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me. I'm doing his work. It was all about exalting the Father. And he teaches us how to build relationships, how to, to form relationships that are founded on integrity and love. The word became flesh, made his dwelling with, with us, and we lived with him. And we learned what a relationship looked like. We learned what it looked like when, when, uh, when, when Simon Peter drifted astray and Jesus pulled him back. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? We see how he interacted and how he built relationships that were around trust when Thomas came and said, if I'm going to believe, I've got to see the wounds. And Jesus showed him his wounds, showed him his side, 
we see how to form relationship. And we see Jesus show, teaching us the needs of people who are in chair number two. Babies in the faith. And we see Jesus teaching us a few, a few things. I have four that I want to just, just throw at you real quick. First and foremost, new believers, those in chair two, need to know that their true identity is in Christ alone. The world's going to scream, whisper all kinds of things in their ear that you, you need to be this, you are this. First and foremost, church, we get our identity from Jesus Christ. Nobody else died for us. Nobody else made us, took us from dead to alive, light, darkness to light. That was Jesus. We are his. We are children of God. Husband, wife, mother, father, teacher, policeman, fireman, coach, all of that is at best secondary to who we are as children of the Most High God. We must rest in that. The Bible lists 33 different things that, that happens to us the moment, the moment that we become Christ. Just a few. We're chosen, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we're included in Christ. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're made alive. We're seated with him in the heavenly realm. Nobody else does that for us. Jesus did that for us. All of these transform our identity as followers of Christ. Understanding that is integral to everything else that we do as believers. Jesus also taught us the people in chair number two need to learn to walk and to talk on their own. Do you remember, parents, the, the, the first time you heard mama or dada or dog um, out of your children's mouth and how, how, how you celebrated? Right? Or how when you held uh, that, 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 that soon-to-be toddler in your hands and you let go of them and they took a step, half a step, and they fell flat on their face? And how we celebrated and how we applauded and how we took pictures. And if you were my parents, you had to pull out the camcorder that was about this big and hoist it up on your shoulder and do take two because they couldn't get the thing up there fast enough for the first step. Do you notice that as a, for me, a 50-year-old, mom and dad aren't standing there applauding me anymore when I trip over my feet? Right? That, that they're, not, they're not excited when I walk up to them and say, Mama. Right? It's because we're expected to grow. And just as our physical, biological children are expected to grow, so are believers in Jesus Christ. Expected to learn to walk and to talk on their own. Our celebrations, we start celebrating different things, different milestones, but we are still there celebrating as they learn to walk and stumble, as they learn to walk, as they learn to run, as they learn to run a long distance, as they, as they learn to talk and, and hold their own in faith conversations. We celebrate all that. New believers, those in chair number two, need to walk, learn how to walk and talk on their own. They also need to learn how to feed themselves. Do you remember the first time that, that you put a bowl of green beans, it's the one with the suction cup that went on the, 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 the high chair so that it was less of a mess, right? Which is a lie because it, it just creates more force and acceleration when that thing finally pops off the thing. And when you finally get at least like, like a third of the green beans in the mouth rather than on the floor or somewhere else on the face and you applaud that, 
or the first birthday where you intentionally buy, a, get a second cake that can be destroyed and wore as an outfit? I'm going to try that next summer when I turn 51. When, when they set me in front of the cake, I'm just going in, right? You guys will see it on social media, but it won't be, yeah, look at our pastor. It'll be, oh, we're going to another church down the road. We don't celebrate the same things. But new Christians, we learn to feed themselves by a steady diet. The Bible talks about it as, as milk and meat. And there's some pretty strong language in there for those who stay in the milk cycle for too long because they're not willing, not making the effort to move to something more substantial. We are to learn how to feed ourselves. At first, we, they may rely heavily uh, on, on, on a mentor, on somebody who's discipling them. But gradually by, and gradually, right, they are taking on more of the responsibility their own. They must learn some other basic life skills as well. Right? When, when, when they fall down, they can't just stay down. They got to learn how to stand back up and try again. Well, when they sin, they have to know, they have to learn that that's not the end of their relationship with Jesus Christ because they messed up one time. You help them stand back up, get their feet planted, and try again. And when they stumble, when they fall, because we all know that we're going to stumble and we're going to fall, that you get back up, you repent, you confess, and you rely on the Holy Spirit to move you forward. Those basic life skills in the cycle of life about overcoming through the power of the Holy Spirit our sin so that now I may, I may cuss every day, but in two or three months, maybe it's every week, to eventually that the distance between my sinning, my particular sin, right, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We are learning that life skill of confession, of repentance, of reliance on the Holy Spirit. But we must know that our identity is in Jesus Christ. We must know how to walk and to talk in this Christian life and how to feed ourselves a constant, ever-increasing and ever-expanding diet of God's Word. And we must learn that it is a cycle of falling down and getting back up and charging ahead by the power of the Spirit. That is what chair two people need in their journey to move to chair number three. And we will get to that next week. Guiding principles for us, if we are working with somebody who is a, is a baby believer, who is new to their faith, first and foremost, we have to nurture new Christians. If we don't, they will die. We've, we've say, we say it all the time. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's, it's the same thing as putting a, a, a target on your body, on your front, on your back, and Satan has you in his crosshairs all the time. And if we just let a new believer wander off, we celebrate at the baptism. We may send cards. We may give a devotion book. We may uh, give them some encouraging pats on the back, but the church has been guilty far too often, far too long of just turning their back on new believers and ignoring them and watching Satan just attack and wear them down. I don't know about you, but I've had to repent of that in my life. We have to nurture those who are new Christians. They need nurture. They're immature. They, they, new Christians will struggle. And in many cases, may not survive. And if, if, and 
We have to nurture. We have to be there for them. You would not take your six-month-old child and just set them loose. Just, just take them out into, into the, into the, down, down in the park and just set them in a swing, give them a push and say, good luck, see you later. And we shouldn't do the same thing with those who are new in their faith. We have to nurture. We have to nurture. We have to establish, this goes back to identity, who they are and whose they are. We have to reinforce in them that you are a child, a new creation in Jesus Christ. Your classmates, your boss, your coworkers, family members, friends may try to tell you something different. Uh-uh. You are a child of God. You have been made alive. You have been bought by Jesus Christ. You are his. And the final thing, one of the grandest pictures of the body of Christ in Scripture is that of a family. The family of God. Now, we have to be careful here because sometimes we are guilty of reversing uh, the direction in which things are supposed to be uh, uh, understood. For example, I have no problem seeing God as Father because I had a pretty good earthly father. And it's easy for me. Not the case for all of us. But we can't say because my dad lacked My heavenly father lacks. That's not the direction. God is the standard as a father. And all fathers should strive to be that. We don't equate God the father to the examples, good or bad, that we have down here. The same thing with the family of God. We may have strong families. We may have the picture of dysfunctional family. But the picture of what a family looks like comes from God's mouth. And comes down. And the family of God is one that supports, that loves, that surrounds, that encourages, that disciplines, that trains, that holds accountable, that worships with, that serves with, that family surrounds. And when things get tough, we may have a good earthly family that helps us out, but we must have a good family of God that is there for us. So as we work with new Christians, we need to remember that we have to nurture. We have to walk alongside life with them. We can't just, hey, here's the tidbit for the week. Let's check back in next Monday. We can't just send them out. We have to nurture. They they have to know who and whose they are. And then we have to be family, like no other family, to be there to celebrate, to be there to encourage, to be there to pick up, to hug, to love, and to just to to grow with them. Now, moving from chair one to chair two, that's pretty spectacular. That, 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 that That is a miracle to the highest degree, but that is only the beginning. Because all of us, as we strive to mature in our faith, as we strive to become more and more like Christ, and that's what this is. These are just, this is just a representation of our life as a Christian. As we strive to become a disciple who just naturally and organically and intentionally is making other disciples, okay? coming to Christ is just 
the grand beginning. The journey is just beginning. And that journey at first, it's going to be rough. And the, the, the new child of God needs the family of God to hold him up, to keep him pointed in the right direction. I don't know where you sit this morning. Maybe, maybe you are still find yourself in chair one. Man, if you, if you are there, I pray that you sense God's Spirit working on you and God just, just, just speaking to you, and whether that's through circumstances, whether that's through a person in your life, I pray that you are obedient to that Spirit and you let God do a work in you when you surrender to Jesus Christ. If you're, not, if you're sitting in chair one today, I pray today is your moving day. If you're sitting in chair two, if you're a new Christian, right, we need to know it. The worst thing you can do is to keep that good news to yourself. Right? You do not have to walk through life. You do not have to fight off the world and Satan's attacks on your own. Let your family stand with you. Regardless of where we are today, there's a response to God's message of follow me. For me, as I shared before, I got to be on my knees. I have to be on my knees saying, God, please forgive me for the times that I turned my back, that I did not, was not focused on a new believer. Wherever you are this morning, I pray that you love your Savior enough, that you like the unbelievers in your life enough that you're willing to respond the way we need to respond, whether that's falling to our knees in forgiveness, falling to our knees in surrender, or going across the driveway and talking to a neighbor who last year at VBS, we know they accepted Christ and we've not done anything with them since then. Guys, I'm just encouraging you this morning as we sing this final song, as we go to God in prayer, to respond as you need to respond.